you, could you just tell us everybody what like VeggieTales is? All right, so VeggieTales was this like cartoon from like the early 2000s about a bunch of anthropomorphic vegetables. Um, the most famous one's probably Larry the Cucumber. And it would have been like a normal cartoon, except it was really, really Christian. And it always aired like outside of like Christian spaces. So it's not like you're just a church, you're watching VeggieTales. Like it would be like just on regular TV. And like you didn't realize how weird it is until like you step back and be like, wait, this is like a very, very religious show. Like an example of like, this isn't like an actual episode, but just like a kind of episode it would have. Like, oh, look, there's a cat stuck in a tree how are we going to get the cat down from the tree? And, like, the characters have all these, like, hijinks trying to get the cat down. And at the very end, one of them will be like, you know what we should have used to get this cat out of this tree? God. Oh and it's God. just like, wait, what, what? It's, like, it's so strange. And, like, it's... I have, like, a lot of fond memories of it in the sense I had to watch it a lot. But, like, in retrospect, I'm like, that. this is kind of like propaganda. I can't lie. Yeah, like, oh, my God. Like, um, someone was saying once that... The difference between the US and the UK is that I'm gonna say I'm gonna mess this up, but they were saying basically that the US pretends it's not religious uh-huh. but then has a lot of religious based like propaganda and stuff and like it's very like the church kind of dictates a lot of stuff in like even the White House and stuff. Whereas the uh-huh. UK pretends it's religious but really isn't. Like even uh-huh. most of our schools, like most of our high schools are religious schools. Um uh-huh. Like, I went to an all-girls Catholic school, but I'm a Muslim. But it's just kind of normal uh-huh. to go to a Catholic school. So, like, oh. yeah, it's just so weird. Like, yeah, that's amazing. Um, I'm actually going to watch that after this, because I just find it funny. I'll send you, I'll send you some of the highlights, because, like, there are some highlights. Like, there was a super... At one point, Larry the Cucumber turned into this super boy named, superhero named Larry Boy. And I still have that, like, Larry Boy theme song, like, stuck in my head. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm going to love that. But, like, I'm actually... I'm obsessed with Catholicism, which is so weird, mm-hmm. because I don't have any interest in converting. I just mm-hmm. love... I don't know. I studied it at school. Like, um, I took it as, like, a subject like religion mm-hmm. and i loved it so much i could i could be a preacher outside because i i like memorized the entirety of mark's gospel i could preach it um so yeah like i feel like that would be really cool for me to be honest um but rosie welcome to my podcast that's such a weird introduction but i just thought it was funny because me and rosie were talking before the podcast started about different things and this just came up and i was like let me just start recording because I think everybody needs to hear about vegetables that are religious. So. Honestly, I feel like this is the most on-brand way to start this because I feel like, <laughs> honestly, our conversations tend to just kind of feel like, let me explain VeggieTales to you. So. <laughs> yeah, it's always like the UK-US divide, but in a very strange way. Um, mm-hmm. and so this is a very perfect way to start. But could you just introduce yourself to everyone, for everyone that doesn't know who you are? I guess they the only thing they know about you now is that you've watched something called VeggieTales. <laughs> So hey everyone, my name is Rosanne Brown, and I'm the author of A Song of Wraiths and Ruin, which will be out on June 2nd from Bowser and Bray, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And I'm so excited for this book. It's like, the cover, when I saw it, when uh, Rosie sent it to me, I literally was just like, taken aback. It's so beautiful. I have a dark-skinned girl on the cover. Like, I'm I'm gonna put a picture of it in the show notes, but it's just so beautiful, and it's green and gold. And, oh my god, what was your reaction when you saw your cover? I was literally just, like, floored, because, like, I'll be honest, at first when we started this process, and we were going over kind of notes and ideas we wanted to go through, well, I was like, well, I feel like the girl in a pretty dress cover, it's a little bit 
overdone in YA. Like, I want something that kind of stands out on shelves. Like, if you could avoid that, that would be great. And they were just like, okay, um, so here you go. And then it just blew me away. I'm like, you know what? I was wrong. You guys were right. This looks amazing. <laughs> like, I feel like it's a nice twist because all we've seen is kind of basic white girls um, in, like, like dresses. And, I mean, it's been nice. Like, I really like the Winner's Curse cover. I think it's really dynamic. Oh, I love that. And I really like the... Uh, Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo cover um, mm. but I think that because we never see it with really black people um, it's just mm. different I think it stands out in that way and she also has does she have grey hair did I make that up you know she does have grey hair yes it's a plot point in the book I love that yes. okay and could you just um, tell us your inspiration for writing A Song of Wraiths and Ruin so um, the quick pitch so Song of Wraiths and Ruin the plot is it's set in a fantasy world inspired by West African folklore, and it follows two characters. One's a refugee named Malik, and another is a princess named Karina. She's the one on the cover. And so Malik's sister is kidnapped by a vengeful spirit, and the spirit um, offers his sister's freedom in exchange for Malik killing Karina. So he enters a competition to win her hand in marriage to get close enough to her to kill her. But he doesn't know that Karina has staged the competition because she needs to murder her husband in order to bring her dead mother back to life. So she is planning to kill whoever wins the competition to um, resurrect her mother. So they're both trying... So it's a dual POV. They both have equal amounts of chapters. And it follows them both trying to kill each other without realizing the other is trying to kill them. Wow. That's just crazy. And what inspired you? So the actual, like, moment that inspired it is people always, like, are surprised by this because it actually doesn't have anything to do with the premise. But, like, it was 2016, and at that time I was a junior in college. Oh, my gosh. I was a junior in college four years ago. And I was walking back from my first therapy session because mental health has always been, like, something I've kind of struggled with. And up until then, I was very reluctant to go because there's lots of stigma in the African community on, like, mental illness and, like, trying to get help with it. And so, like, I really let it get really, really bad until I dealt with it. And I remember I was walking home from my first session and, like, just kind of reviewing what had happened. And I was thinking to myself, wow. If a ghost tried to possess me right now, they'd be like, oh, this is awful. I don't like this. Like, this was a mistake. And it's just like, that image just got seared into my mind of, like, a character who is, like, meets the supernatural. And the supernatural is like, you are such a mess that I don't want to deal with you. And it's like, that character actually became the inspiration for Malik. Because, like, I had never seen, like, an... A, like hero and especially a black hero in a fantasy novel who really dealt with like mental illness not like as a metaphor or as like some kind of like magic analog but like as a real serious thing on top of like actual things a fantasy character deals with and so he became the catalyst for that and i was like okay well this character how'd he get in touch with like the supernatural how he gets his position what kind of world would it be normal that boys are being possessed by demons um and so as I start to flesh out the world, Karina came next because I need a counterpoint to his voice. But I start to build up the world there and like I'm like knew from the start I wanted to write a world inspired by like West Africa, specifically kind of the Trans Saharan corridor between like North Africa down to West Africa, just because so many of the historical kingdoms, um, some of the greatest ones in African history have happened in that corridor quarter like the Songhe, the ancient Ghana, not current Ghana, um, the Mali people, the Amoravids, the Amohads, like all of them exist in that kind of like trade route area. Yeah. And it's such an intersection of vibrant cultures that have nothing to do with Europe. I knew that was like the corner I really wanted to kind of use as my jumping off point. 
that is just so cool and so interesting as well and actually yeah i love that you mentioned that because i've got family like my ancestry is a mix of like that kind of like middle section um Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people from north africa and also Mm -hmm. people from obviously uh what was the benin empire um and so obviously i have Ghanaian blood um unfortunately um so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna roast you in this, okay? I promise myself that I'm not gonna roast anyone from Ghana. I'm gonna be very good. So. Thank you, thank you. Oh my gosh, I just <sighs> yeah. Props to Ghana. Props to Ghana, man. <laughs> um, and I love that mental health inspired this. I don't think I've ever read a book. Actually, I guess um I read Namina's book, and that deals with PTSD and like um discussing rape and stuff um with black characters, but with specifically black male characters in fantasy that's just unheard of yes there was a conversation on twitter the other day about like where are all the black boys in white fantasy because i feel like black girls in white fantasy have really had this sort of like well not even a renaissance because that implies there was a an earlier like movement when really it's only kind of in the last five years we've really seen black girls coming on covers in contemporary and fantasy but i feel like black boys are still very much kind of like they've been put into this mold and like it's definitely harder to find why like science fiction fantasy that really centers on black boys not because these authors aren't writing it but there's not being published you know and it's so interesting because you know they're interested in it because like i I don't know so many black boys i know they love anime and i guess maybe they're looking for something non-white that is fantastical um Mm -hmm. and so yeah i feel like there is a market there for it but like publishing just hasn't like you know as it does it doesn't care. Yeah, I think it's gonna be a situation because, like, I know to- um I might be saying his name wrong. Apologies, I am. Tochi Onyebuchi. He wrote um, <clears throat> Beast Made of Night. Like, he's definitely like these authors are out there, and I think it's gonna be a situation like we're gonna need a book that really just like like a book a black boy centered fantasy that just kind of like blows up in the way that Children But a Bone really yeah. show people there was a market for black girl centered fantasy you know like obviously we you and me Farida, we both knew that yeah but like it showed the publishers that this was true and so like when a book comes that really shows the publishers that the black boys not just deserve it but like they are, will be here for this that they will like celebrate this and that like it's in their own interest to publish these books i think that's when we're going to see the same movement that we saw happen for black girls in fantasy yeah um, and I can't wait for that to come. I'm hoping it comes soon. Also, you said Tochi's name quite like well, so maybe you have Nigerian blood. I think it's just more like in nine times out of ten, I'm pretty good at guessing most African name pronunciations because like, sim- like there's enough similarities between, especially within West Africa, Africa. There's enough similarities between how you pronounce names that I can usually guess pretty right. If when we start getting East Africa, I'm like, okay, now I'm starting <laughs> to like just guess. Yeah, same actually. Actually, I'm like. I realize I don't know if I'm being general general here because obviously I'm a diaspora kid, but um I realized that Ghanaian names, um specifically the Ashanti tribe names, I guess. Am I being right? I don't know. But um a lot of Ghanaian names specifically remind me of Ibo names. And so um the pronunciation feels similar to me. There's a lot of K sounds and like yeah. yeah. So yeah, I I kind of I'm the same yeah with West African names I feel like it's easier to guess mm-hmm, definitely and could you just let us know what your publication journey was like I feel like everyone's is so different and it's so interesting to hear 
Oh god, so mine was kind of like wild because like so fun fact, A Song of Race and Ruin is the first book I've ever written, like ever. Like there was no manuscript before it, like there was no there were a couple attempted uh, like attempts to write a book that each one by the time I got to twenty five K I was just bored. Like I just couldn't do it. I'd published a couple short stories before this, but like that in twenty sixteen I sat down like, you know what? I'm gonna finish a book. Like so this was written not even necessarily with the intent of publishing it, just to like prove to myself like can I focus long enough to write a book? So that first draft took me a year. So I remember I finished it on January fifth, twenty seventeen. And I know this because this is the exact day that Nicki Minaj and Meek Mill broke up and that's all anyone was talking about. <laughs> so I've always associated the two in my mind. Um and so it's January 5th, I'm just like, so yeah, I finished the drafts, now what? Um, at the time, I didn't even know what a query letter was. Like, I didn't even know how you get an agent, I didn't know any of that. Um, but I just started an internship at Entangled um, Team, and one of the, kind of like, the assistant editors there, Ashley Hearn, she was like, hey, there's this really cool, um, like, this really cool mentorship program called Pitch Wars, and I think, like, if you have a draft or anything, you have nothing to lose by entering. I was like, what? This sounds so cool. And so I revised, like, mad for, like, three, four months, and so I basically rewrote the whole book in four months. So this is draft two. And I submitted to Pitch Wars, and I got in with my mentor, Laura Cole, and she was like, this is great. I love the, like, heart of it. I love what you're trying to do, but I think we need a full rewrite. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Imagine, like, tears of blood going down my face, like, okay, Laura, because she was right, but it's just, ooh, ooh, it was a lot of work. So that was, draft three was another full rewrite. So that was from August to, no, no, that was September to November of 2017. November 2017 comes, um, the agent showcase happens, and I sign with my agent, Curisa Robinson of Nelson Literary Agency, who I love, and she's like, this is great, I just have a couple more notes for you before we go on submission. I was like, ooh, let's do it again. So this is draft four, is what went on submission in March of 2018. And then it sold in April 2018 to Kristen Renz at Bowser and Bray. So that means across about a two-year span, it went through four drafts, um, three of which were, no, not three, two of which were full rewrites before it sold. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> it, it was a marathon. I can't even lie. It was just a marathon draft after draft. And how was the submission like? Submission was actually, I had a pretty calm submission, I can't lie. Um, Curiosa kind of cultivated the list and she showed me, like, okay, here's what the um, editors we're looking at. Here are the houses we know that, like, are well known for, like, YA fantasy supporting debut authors. Here are the houses we're going to avoid simply because we think they, like, have too much, like, similar on their list or, like, they're just not in a position to support you as you need right now. Um, actually, from, when I looked at the list the first time I saw Kristen's names, I'm like, Kristen, man, like, she's, like, she's so cool, but she has, like, so many, like, cool fancies right now. She's probably not on the market for another, like, I, in my head, I was just, like, oh, she's not gonna want the book, and, like, she was the, like, first person to come back, like, no, I want this. I was, like, oh, so, but it was, yeah, it was, um, four weeks from submission to offer, so I'm very grateful, because it's, that was, I know that's unusually fast, and so I'm just very grateful for how that worked out. That's amazing, and I'm so glad that um, you didn't have to go through an awful submission process or anything like that. And we get to see your book now uh, coming out under very, very interesting circumstances. But nonetheless, I'm happy to see it out in the world. 
Thank you. Yeah. So the submission talk was fast. What took longest, honestly, was the contract because it was five months from sale to um, announcement. Wow. So that part was torture. Contracts can take like forever. One of my friends, um, this is a secret, so I'm not even going to like hint at anything. But one of my friends got a book deal last year sometime. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's been over a year now. The contract, I feel, is still not finalized. Oof. And it's been a year and they haven't announced. I'm just like, how are you coping? Um, yeah, it's crazy, and it's coming out next year. Oh well, uh, we'll see with if the the whole pandemic affects it. But it's coming out next year in spring, so I'm like, when are they gonna announce? <laughs> um, publishing is crazy. Yep, and it really is. I feel like when that happens, a lot of people they just start working on the like edits with the editor because they're just like, we can't meet like this timeline's not working. We have to just get started. Yeah, exactly. She's already started. I think she's on like draft two with the editor um uh-huh. right now but yeah it's crazy like publishing is like a very long process and a lot of people that say i'm just gonna publish a book like like it's nothing i'm like okay sure <laughs> how has it been like being a black woman um in the publishing industry how has it impacted the way people have received you or your book i think one thing that's definitely been strange about being a black woman in the industry is kind of like there's always that feeling like because the thing is every publication problem um, journey like there's always going to be bumps there's always going to be like snags in the road and it's like trying to figure out like oh is did this editor not connect with it like w- like when they say oh I can't connect with the voice you're trying to figure out like okay was there an actual issue with the voice like is this a craft issue that I need to fix or is this like a you don't know how to like connect with like a black voice like it's trying to f- untangle that I think one of the biggest ways is like trying not to second guess yourself and trying, especially when you're a debut, especially when you're untested, and especially when you're doing all this for the first time, there's definitely this feeling of, like, you're aware that certain things are, like, happening just because you're new, and that's just how it happens, and then certain things are happening, and then you talk to another debut author, you're like, hang on, no, I thought this was a debut experience, no, this was very much, like, something was up experience, oh, okay, oh, um, and so that can be kind of difficult to entangle, but in a lot of ways, I think what's been so wonderful about being a black woman in this industry is that there's such a like built-in support system of black women authors who have come before me who have really worked hard to like reach back and like share their knowledge, share their support, share like their resources resources with like me and the other debuts and let us know like they're here for us, let us know that like they have our backs, let's like be a sounding board to be like, hey, this happened. Am I like tripping or was like this weird? And they'll be like, no, no, you're weird. And be like, like, boo, I love you, but you kind of tripping. Like, <laughs> like just Danielle Clayton, Patrice Caldwell, Nick Stone. There's some, just, there's just three of the people who have just really been like in it to like really support debuts, especially right now with like lots of like the black woman debuts being pushed or like just having to kind of weather the storm. Like, being part of that support network and being part of like that vast group of people like we got you like no matter what happens good or bad like we got you i think that has been the most like wonderful part of it for me 100 percent, same exactly like i feel like this whole experience has been made by black women um Mm -hmm. both the ones that have come before and also the ones that are doing it with like with us right now um Mm -hmm. it's just such an amazing community everyone is so wonderful there's no backstabbing it's kind of like when one person wins everyone wins um and it's just so lovely and it feels like i don't know it just feels like there's someone there as you mentioned those names of those people um nick has been amazing donielle um patrice angie 
Mm-hmm. There's just so many of them, and they're just so lovely. And none of them, all of them, are such big people that like they're huge, like mm-hmm. bestsellers and stuff. But they're so humble and like um, they don't care about where you are. They want to lift yes. everyone up, basically. Yes, because the truth is like. Honestly, like, we don't have time to be playing the, like, because it's a very competitive industry, like, I won't lie, and, like, it's definitely an industry where you have to learn how to be jealous of your friends, because someone's always going to sell faster, someone's always going to sell for more, someone's always going to have, like, more marketing, more buzz, more tour stops, ever, like, there's always going to be more, no matter where you are, and, like, yeah, you could let it stop you, and you could let it be, like, oh, but I don't get that, I don't get to do that, but, like... At the end of the day, it's just, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And, like, definitely, I know for me, like, when the jealousy comes, because, like, I get jealous, too. I'm not going to act like a saint. But, like, I've really learned how to turn the jealousy from, like, something that stops me. Like, oh, my book's not going to do as well as so-and-so, blah, blah, to being, like, I need to let this fuel me. And, like, even though I can't control how people react to the book, what the book gets, like, I can put this energy into making a damn good next book, you know? And so, like letting my energy fuel me instead of being like why didn't I get that why does that person get that to being like I'm gonna write a book that's like deserving of getting that you know if if that book gets that it's still out of my control but at least I can know I put in everything I can to make that book like a book worthy of like all the attention all the praise you know I think that's something so many black women in this industry understand especially because like it's how we've moved through the world for like centuries because we understand that like yeah feelings of like jealousy competitiveness pettiness they're very normal but we understand that at the end of the day like you need to feel them you need to move through them but you can't let them define how you act because the world's already doing enough to drag you down you know exactly and I love how much it kind of mirrors the the matriarch in um, Africa um, it's yeah. kind of like we're all just kind of for each other and lifting each other up constantly and actually what you said about like fueling like the jealousy because everybody's going to get jealous you know when you're querying mm-hmm. and people are getting agents you're going to feel jealous but like mm-hmm. it's um what I do as well is that I just like say okay they got this IP or they got this I'm going to try and like do as well as they're doing and I'm going to cheer mm-hmm. them on and I'm going to try and like like concentrate on my own stuff and like get to where they are yeah i feel like it's so important to not let the jealousy basically eat away your mental health and like your wellness so yeah um and the next question is a fun one um as i know that you're a big anime nerd um, (laughs) so what are your top three anime recs that you want to give people this one's cruel because like it's just it's, it's so hard to answer this one and I have so many because like depending on like so many different shows have like done so much for me when I was in different stages of my life they hit differently like picking just three is hard so I'm gonna pick three that mean a lot to me I won't say I'm not gonna like tie myself down and say my top favorite of all time but like these are three shows that like I come back to again and again the first one is Nagi no Asukara which is like kind of like this almost it's it's I'd say the closest thing is it's a drama with a strong romance subplot, but it's not a romance, in the sense that it takes place on this small village off the coast of Japan, and it features uh there's actually two villages. There's one that's above the land with normal humans, and then there's a second one with human beings who have adapted to live under the sea. Like they're not mermaids, they're not like half fish, like they're full on human beings, but they can breathe underwater. And so they live in the bay of this area um just under the water and however their population has been dwindling lately to the point that like the current generation like there's only like five youngsters and so their school closes and so they send the like sea kids to go up to land and to start attending school with the land kids and so the it's about what happens when the sea kids start going to school with the land kids and how like 
their lives change with the new land people who they come in contact with and the land people, how they change when they come in contact with the sea kids. And I know that sounds very strange, but it's one of the most moving shows I've ever watched because it's all about like, it's all about kind of just like the, the kind of like the ways we're taught to see the world and like how we need to like learn to like break down our own internalized bias to truly understand one another. And it's just just watching these kids like just kind of learn like learn to reshape the way they view the world based on how they go through it. It's, just, it's so good. It's so sweet, and it's just one of those anime that like I feel like I'm not doing it justice because I feel like the way I said it sounds so boring. But like I can't say anything else without making a spoiler. So like I love Nagunosakara. If you're like a big fan of Slowburn and like you really like seeing all the pieces come together in an explosive way, like watch this show. Um, Another one is a classic. This one was a huge inspiration for Malik because um, of the main character, Neon Genesis Evangelion, um, which if you guys watch anime, you know it's about a young boy in like post, like kind of like future dystopia Tokyo where they're like being like attacked by angels all the time. And the only way to fight the angels are these giant mechas called Avas. And so one young boy discovers he has kind of like the ability to pilot an Ava, but he really doesn't want to do it. But he knows he's the only hope they have. And what I love most so much about Ava is I feel like it was one of the first um media where I really saw an anxious main character, like in a very honest way, because like the main character Shinji, like he is super like depressed, super anxious. And it's not, like, something that's, like, written away or it's not willed away or it's not, like, oh, look, being a hero and saving people, like, made his anxiety better. Like, honestly, being a hero and having, like, the fate of the world thrust on his shoulders actually makes his mental health worse. Um, And it's a very frank kind of, like, deconstruction of the chosen one and, like, kind of narratives where, like, only the kids can save the world. Like, when you push the fate of the world onto kids, it messes them up real bad. And so Shinji definitely became a big inspiration for Malik and, like, kind of, moving through what does um, mental illness, mental health look like in a fantastical setting. Um, and a third one, a third one, a third one. Oh, gosh. Oh, God. Uh, okay, this is a third one. This is one of my favorite comfort shows of all time, Gawkwin Babysitters, and it's nothing like the other two. Everyone, please don't judge me. But it's literally about these two boys who, one of them's like a teenager, one of them's a literal baby. And they lose their parents in a plane accident, and then they get adopted by this old woman who also lost her son in the plane accident. And she says they can come live with her, and, like, she owns the school. So, like, they're like, you can come live with me, you can stay at my school, but the only caveat is I need you to, like, run this daycare for the school's teachers. So the boy starts working at the daycare, and his little brother gets to stay at the daycare, and it's about his adventures kind of, like, grieving and moving past the accident, and also just, like, playing with the babies all day and getting to know the babies and the teachers, and it's just, like... It just feels like a warm hug. Like, there's, like, a hundred-something chapters. Like, if you think there's not that much content about just a bunch of babies in daycare, but there is. Trust me, there is. And I just love Gawkwood Babysitters so much. So <laughs> those are my three, like, three of my favorites that have nothing to do with each other at all. <laughs> I mean, it's varied, so there'll be a lot of, like, um, people that might be interested in one of them or, like, all three of it, maybe. <laughs> you don't want to get the attention of those, like, you know, the white male anime lovers and they're like she doesn't know what she's talking about oh my gosh i know right because like the thing is i was thinking other answers like because i also naruto had a huge impact on me my hero academia had a huge impact on me like a lot of like the the temple series like the ones that are considered like the capital a anime series also like have been a huge impact on me because i have been anime for a long time friends a long time but like those are three series i just i keep coming back to just because like 
easier them to fill something that I find I'm looking for in storytelling in a different way. And could you tell us who you'd pick to have tea with that's an author, um, dead or alive? Oh gosh, dead or alive, author I have tea with. Um, Very girl. evil question. It is an evil question, because I, I feel like if you can only pick one, you should pick someone dead, because like, someone who's alive, you could theoretically still pull it off if you're smart. Mm-hmm. If I could only pick a dead author to have tea with, honestly, probably Octavia Butler, because I want to just be like, ma'am your mind can you just like teach me how just just teach me how you exist because the stuff she pulled off in her books are just like mind-blowing like kindred kindred messed me up for a while kindred i think is one of the best books ever written and i also like do not recommend it lightly because it's like you gotta be in a certain mind space a certain spiritual wavelength to get through kindred because it's rough and just like when i think of like what it takes to pull off something like that i'm just like can i just like take a peek at your mind and just like for just five minutes because like that is just next level to me i'd love to meet her as well actually i was watching um this interview type discussion thing that nk Demison was doing um with mm-hmm. neil gaiman and mm-hmm. she said that she had the opportunity to meet octavia and she chickened out and then octavia <gasps> died and i was like that sounds heartbreaking that's oh no that's a nightmare oh no gosh i just i feel like octavia she would just like obviously i can't put any words in her mouth or anything but i would like to hope that she'd be so proud to see how far like black sff has come like even a phoenix must first burn yes like no a phoenix first must burn i always switch those two but like even that book comps like it's octavia's butler meets beyonce's lemonade and like just seeing the impact her work continues to have and will continue to have i hope she'd be proud to see that i think she would be definitely um and the next question is if your characters had access to the death note what would they like who would they who would use it number one and whose name other than each other's would they write so here's the thing so Malik would just not Malik he, he Malik would chicken out he could not do it he'd feel too much bad he'd be like what right do I have to decide who gets to die blah 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 he's like he's a sweet sweet boy he couldn't do it like okay let me amend that book one Malik couldn't do it book two Malik has gone through some shit I think book two Malik held some serious grudges that he would use to, like he would use a death note for because a big part of Malik's character arc in book one is like he really thinks he's just like sweet powerless like soft boy which in some ways he is but like as the book progresses he really starts to realize what he's capable of both both good and bad so i think like end of book one slash start of book two malik he'd do it um and whose name he'd write he probably honestly probably the spirit who kidnapped his sister you can't really kill a spirit but like if you could he'd probably do it um he'd write probably soldiers who like sort of use violence to like oppress people he'd definitely do that he has lots of bad experiences with kind of they're called sentinels in the book who are kind of like the um queen's elite guard and they're the ones who kind of uphold the oppression of his people he'd definitely do that and honestly the thing about malik is book one like he doesn't really want to kill karina so in book one he probably wouldn't write her name except given what happens at the end of the book i think book two he'd do it so he actually has an opposite problem which is like he's more likely to do it in book two that he will be book one and you'll have to read the book to understand why as for karina i feel like karina would think she'd want to do it and she'd like be ready she'd have like her pen and she'd just stop and she'd be like hang on 
I don't actually hate anyone that much. Like, she has, she holds a lot of grudges, definitely. And she's definitely, like, a meaner person than Malik. But at the end of the day, like, versus Malik, who really has had, like, some people who have really harmed him and harmed his people in serious, traumatic ways. Karina's like a princess. She lived a very privileged life. Like, few people have hurt her, like, truly. So, like, there's not, like, there's people she dislikes and people, like, given a chance, would she want them to, like, maybe break a leg or break several legs? Sure. If they have multiple legs, I don't know. Multiple, like, <laughs> more than two. But you know what I mean. I love but, Karina. Like, he says, but, like, when she gets down and thinks about, like, people she wants to die, die, there aren't that many. Except, again, book two. Book two, there's definitely one person she really, really wants to kill. And, like, so really getting into her, seeing her push to a point, like, actually, like, oh, he's going down. That's been fun to write. I feel like your characters have been through it. <laughs> They have, they have. That's part of, like, what one of the challenges of writing book two is, like, I put them through so much book one. It's, like, how do I put them through even more that's not rehashing what already happened in book one? <laughs> and the final question is, what do you want people to take away from reading um, your book? What I want people to take most from reading Wraith is I really want them to, like, come away from it really questioning kind of the structures that they've grown up in and that have, like, dem- that have um sort of decided their world and like really think like why is the world like this why am i accepting this like just because this is the way things have always been does that mean it's the way they should always be and just the idea that like kind of what you've been taught to hate about yourself especially when you come from a marginalized background especially when you come from like you have multiple identities that are marginalized and intersect with one another like learning that the world wants you to hate those identities for a reason and how can you turn what you've been taught to hate about yourself into a strength and that's something the characters learn to go through that's something i'm still trying to figure out how to do so i really want readers to come away and really learn to like look and challenge the things around them and like really and if there's they they challenge those things they come to the fact they come to a conclusion like okay actually i still believe in these structures then be ready to defend them be ready to fight for what you believe in and especially for black readers i really want black readers to come away and realize like we deserve to be like the center of any kind of narrative we want like we deserve like the disney princess level stories like the high fantasy the like high romance but we also deserve like nitty-gritty we deserve like you deserve to be the villain you deserve to be the morally questionable like kylo ren type like i always tell people like kylo ren would not be as beloved as he was if he was black like the day someone gets to write a character like kylo ren or zuko or make them and make them black and make them like as beloved as those characters i'll feel like black sff we really like we hit a place I want to see us get to because I feel like we're definitely have seen a place where we're allowed to be the heroes and we're allowed to be like morally good but I'm like when do we get to see black characters really be complex and like honestly be bad and still compelling that's what I want to see so I want black readers to know you deserve every kind of narrative honestly T thank you so much for being on my podcast today where can everyone find you online and your website so the best place to find me is uh, I'm really active on Twitter. Shout out to Brazilian Book Twitter if you're reading this. Love y'all. Um, um, so on Twitter, I'm at Rosie's Brambles. That's R-O-S-I-E-S-R-A-M-B-L-E-S. So like that's Rosie S and then Rambles. Um, and I'm the same handle on IG as well. Those are the two best places to come say hi to me. Um, my website is rosannabrown.com I rarely update that so like you're better off following me on Twitter definitely come up I have lots of cool launch stuff planned and we have a really cool pre-order campaign for it's actually not just pre-order let me rephrase that it's a launch campaign 
we decided to extend it past the usual pre-order and like extend it for a full month kind of um in light of the whole COVID situation so any pre-order or order that happens through june 30th of the book is eligible to get like a um a really cool swag pack of a book plate a bookmark two really cool character cards and a short story set in the a song of racing Woman world which is essentially like a fairy tale that's like kind of like a sexy beauty and the beast and both malik and karina show up in ways you might not expect thank you so much um I'm so excited to get your book in the mail and is, is the pre-order pack available to international people? Yes, it is. And also, fun fact, UK listeners, where the book's going to be um, a UK native copy in July 9th. So you won't have to just order international. Like You'll be able to get it in the UK That's starting brilliant. July 9th. I'm so excited. Um, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Do you have any last words, everyone? Last words would be, um, first of all, don't baby when a pandemic, y'all. Just try and avoid that if you possibly can. But um, aside from that, there's definitely the idea that, like, I think right now, more than ever, it's so important to remember, like, if you're a creative of every type, really get to the heart of why you do this and why you want to do this, because it's something I've definitely been having to relearn as I've been restructuring my expectations for this book and how its launch is going to look. And so, like, while there's definitely been a lot of grieving and a lot of kind of, like, the usual author milestones that I don't get to have, it has been beneficial in a way that I've really had to look deep and be like, what does this book mean to me? Like, what is, if everything else had to go, what still needs to remain? What do I still need to get across? And so I really encourage every creative, every person to look deep and think, like, and then what is this truly about? If everything else goes, what has to remain for me and my work and what I want to put in the world? Thank you.